Well, I'm, I'm thankful for John's prayer for our leadership of our church, I mean of our country. <laughs> Not the church, woo! <laughs> we, it is, it's a good reminder to pray for our leadership. If you remember when we were in the book of Romans, how we're commanded to pray for our leaders. And John rightly said that God's ultimately in control. God controls the hearts of kings and rulers throughout all eternity. We might not understand why he's put some people in in place, but God is sovereign and God knows what our world needs. So continue to pray for that and pray that both of our candidates would come to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior as well. Well, this morning we are going to look at some leadership. Turn with me to the book of Judges as we if you were with us last week, we just started a series in going through the book of Judges. And this morning, we're going to look at the last half of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And what we'll see is a report of the events of the nation of Israel as they are coming into the promised land and trying to fulfill their covenant with what God has given them. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to teach us as we read his word this morning. Lord God, we are so thankful for your sovereignty that you rule the entire world, and you have, Lord God, the hearts of men and women in your hands, and you can turn them as you will. And we pray, Lord God, that this morning as we read your word, that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us as a church and as individuals who have made a covenant with you. And if there's anyone in this room, Lord God, this morning that has not made a covenant with you, we pray that you would show them, Lord God, their need for you and that they would make that decision this morning. And we pray all this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, the title of this morning's message is Making Covenants. You know, when you think of covenants, you think of the marriage covenant that we make as husband and wives to one another. And that's certainly one type of covenant that we make. There are covenants that are treaties between nation between nations as well. But the covenant that we're going to look at this morning is a little different because it's a covenant that comes from God and God decides what's going to be in that covenant. It's not necessarily two parties agreeing on something. It's one party saying this is the covenant that I've called you into and that other party just accepting it and owning up to their part. And we will see that that covenant that God makes with the nation Israel, you will see parallels and a foreshadow of our own covenant with God as well. So just a little background on where we are at. As I mentioned, the nation of Israel is coming into the promised land that God is the one who promised them, their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and including Moses and Joshua, as we will see. And so they are coming to take the land. Now, Joshua has already, through his leadership, broken the backs, per se, of the main hurdle in the promised land of Canaan. And now each and every individual tribe is to assume that promise that is theirs. And so chapter 1 is really a summary of what's about to take place through the rest of the book of Judges. And so this morning, we're going to look at a few of the tribes in the last half of chapter one 
and then hear what God says about their success or lack thereof. So let's look first, and this gives it away, at the failure, it really is a failure, of the tribes to keep the covenant with God, starting in verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. And I want you to see, this is the setup for each tribe. They didn't possess the entirety of their land. And because of that, you get this little note at the end, the Canaanites remained in the land. If you remember, part of the covenant was God told Israel to drive the Canaanites out of the land. And you will see, as we've already saw last week with the first two tribes, Each and every one of them fails to do that. And so here Manasseh fails to do that. And so the Canaanites stay in their land. They're coexisting with the Canaanites. And then verse 28 gives us a summary real quickly of the entire nation. It says, it came about when Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. You might be thinking, well, that's good. But the writer says, but they did not drive them out completely and and seeing that i thought of this is that they didn't they eventually became so strong the nation israel that they could have driven them out but they didn't instead they enslaved them they enslaved the canaanites again a disobedient to disobedience to god god told them to drive them out but they didn't do that and they allowed them to remain it reminded me that it was not it's not unlike each and every one of us We come to a point in our Christian life where we think we can control that little sin that we're playing with in our life. That we could suppress it instead of getting rid of it completely. We keep it and try to control it on our own strength. And like we will see, the nation Israel suffers for that, like us, when we do that. Let's move on, starting in verse 29, or continuing in verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalo. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subjects to forced labor. Three tribes, three failures. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib. Or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Notice the difference in wording here. The Canaanites didn't live with the tribe. This time it says the tribe lived with the Canaanites. Very telling about what's going on. Naphtali, verse 33, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites. So they too, like Asher, lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. And then 
Look at this one. This is the total difference in all the other ones. The Amorites forced the sons of Dan. Dan is a tribe of Israel. The Asherites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Sha'abim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, Akrabim from Selah and upward. I want to take a moment and hear in verse 34. Did you see that? The Israelites didn't drive the natives or, or drive them out of the land, nor did they allow them to coexist. The Canaanites, in this example, excuse me, the Amorites forced Dan to stay up in the hill country. You're like, you're not even coming into the promised land. You're going to stay in that region. So each and every one of these tribes failed at taking their inheritance. God told them and their ancestors that you're going to go into the land, you're going to face the native pagan countries in those lands, and you're going to force them out, drive them out, and take over. But each and every single one of them, including the two that we looked at last week, failed. If you remember last week, I said one commentator called this book the canonization of Israel, where Israel becomes like the pagan nations around them. And I can't help but think of the parallels of the Christian church today. And each and every one of us takes a, needs to take a look at ourselves. Are we becoming like our culture or are we being different from our culture? That's a question for each and every one of us to answer. So that's the situation Israel finds themselves in. Now, let's look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Because here we'll see how God responds to this. And God responds in what's called a judgment oracle. God is going to relay or actually re-explain his covenant to Israel in the form of a judgment oracle. Look at what it says. We'll read through verse 5 and then come back and highlight some points here. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgah to Bochim. And he said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land which I swore unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they will become as thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. So we're going to stop there and go back over this judgment oracle where God explains his covenant with Israel once again. And so we're introduced to this speaker who is the angel of the Lord, or your Bible might say messenger of the Lord, or more appropriately, the envoy of the, the, envoy of the Lord. And many commentators believe that this is what's called a theophany, a time where Jesus Christ appears in the Old Testament. 
either way, this is a strong message from God to the nation of Israel for their breaking covenant with him. And he and he starts off by reminding them of his past favor and his deliverance to them. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. And I and I brought you into this land, which I swore to your father. So God's reminding him, remember, Israel, my covenant with you, my promise is that I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you into this promised land, which they now have failed to take over. He's reminding them of that. This was, again, a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and even to Joshua. You remember in the very beginning of Joshua, chapter 1, let's turn there, looking at verses 1 through 5, Moses has died right at the edge of seeing the promised land that he had taken Israel up to. And now Joshua is going to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. And God reminds Joshua of this very fact of this covenant. It says this in verse 1, chapter 1 in the book of Joshua. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses. This is that promise to Israel. They are now in the promised land in the book of Judges and are treading on every inch of land that God promised to them, but yet they failed to take it. Verse 4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea towards the, toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. And look what he says to him. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, and I will not fail you or forsake you. This promise was also relayed to Joshua. This covenant, Joshua, I promised the forefathers, this is the land, take it. Nobody can stand before you. And as we've seen through each of these tribes, they didn't take the land. It says they didn't drive out the inhabitants of this area or that area. Instead, they allowed the inhabitants of the land to stay there. So God's reminding them of this great covenant. I brought you out of Egypt. I've brought you into this land. And then he says to them, going back to our text, in verse 1, he says, I will never break my covenant with you. God never breaks his covenant with us, with his people. God is not a man that he should lie. What God says, God does. I hope you take comfort in that. He says he will never break covenant with them. And he says, as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. Part of God's covenant with the nation of Israel, when he called them out into this land, he says, when you get there, do not make covenant. Remember, don't make treaties is one way to use it. Don't make treaties with pagans. 
by allowing them to stay there. And you'll see over and over again throughout the history of Israel, they do that, and they pay dearly for that by making treaties with those around them. So part of their responsibility to the covenant was you don't make treaties with the inhabitants of the land, and you tear down their altars. Remember I read last week, when they go into the land, it wasn't so much that they were supposed to destroy the people's land, but destroy their worship, their false gods. And as I mentioned last week, and as you know, the history of Israel, over and over they did not do that, right? They always left a little piece undone. And again, it reminds us when we leave a little bit of sin in our life, it comes back to bite us. Well, we like doing this one thing, or I got control over it. Nobody knows. I'm sneaking around. It always comes back to bite. And it will, as we'll see next week, in a big way with the nation of Israel. So God says about this covenant in the, at the end of verse 2, but you have not obeyed me. You have not kept covenant with me, Israel. I did all these things. God lists these things. I brought you out of the land. I are out of Egypt. I brought you into this land. I promised that I will never break covenant with you. And you just obey me, but you didn't. You didn't obey me. And he says, what is this you have done? Was it that God didn't know? You never want to be asked that by God, do you? What have you done? Or even asked by your parents, what have you done? If I tell my little son, Jonathan, what have you done? It's not that I don't know what he's done. It's more like shock that he's done this. Or to get him to realize what he's done. So here God tells Israel, what is this you guys have done? Like, not that he can't believe it. But after all that I've done for you, why have you done this? It reminds me of the other times when God asked that exact same question. You remember in the book of Genesis when he comes to Eve and he says, what is this you have done? And what does she do? The classic blame shifting. The serpent. It wasn't me. It was the serpent. She's just taking the lead from Adam who said, hey, you gave me this woman. Even Cain, when Cain killed Abel, God asked Cain, what is this you have done? I pray God never says, what have you done? I'm sure he said it to me a number of times. But God's complaint against the nation of Israel is that you didn't obey me. What have you done? And if you read, continue on, which we'll do next week in chapter 2, that's laid out a list of things they have done. So God reminds Israel of covenant and says, you guys have not kept it. So now part of the judgment oracle is that he now says what's going to happen to Israel for breaking covenant with him. Look at what he says in verse 3. Therefore, I also said, see, part of God's covenant was, if you were to go back and read through the, uh, the, in, in Leviticus or Numbers, even in Exodus, that God says, this is part of my covenant, that if you do these things, this will happen. And if you don't do these things, this will happen. God keeps his word. Again, if any parent knows, when you tell your kids, hey, 
son or daughter, if you do A, B, and C, then this will happen. But if you do this, then this is going to happen. You will be disciplined. And God says the same thing, like a loving father to his children, Israel. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they, speaking of the inhabitants of the promised land, he says, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your side, and their gods will be snares to you. So God's judgment to the nation of Israel for breaking covenant is that I'm not going to drive out these people before you. And because you guys have broken covenant, you've already seen that these people are remaining in the land. And not only will they remain there, but they will become thorns in your side. They will irritate you. They will bug you. They will be a pain to you. And again, as you read through Judges and all the books of history in the Old Testament, that's what happens. And in the book of Kings and First and Second Samuel, the inhabitants of the land are a constant thorn in their side. They're always fighting with them. They're always being taken over by them and forced into slavery. Well, what about God keeping covenant? Oh, yeah, God's going to promise eventually they're going to be driven out. But you have to keep your end of the bargain, Israel. I'm going to drive them out eventually. They will become thorns in your side. And more. And the worst part, I should say, not more important, is that their gods will be a snare to you. How many times does Israel over and over again fall to idolatry, worshiping other gods? Because they didn't get rid of them. They left them in their life. They left them in their land. They did not completely drive them out. They did not completely smash their altars. They did not completely get rid of false religion. No, he says, this is part of you breaking covenant is I'm going to leave them there. I'm not going to drive them out. And their gods will be a snare to you. So instead of having complete victory in their life, they will struggle and their victories will be few and far between and they will become slow. And eventually, some of them will even serve the gods of their land. I like what one commentator says about this section of Scripture. He says, the word of God has not lost its power, but the people of who have it on their tongues do not thoroughly enter, uh, do not thoroughly enter into its life. It's like they have this form of godliness, but denying the power. And I can't help but think that sometimes in our own lives, we suffer from that part of it as well. Again, we have these little parts of sin in our life that keep us from possessing all that God wants for us in complete obedience. Now, does that mean, well, hey, if I'm always obedient to God, that nothing bad's ever going to happen? No, because in Scripture, we see how, look at Job, perfect and righteous in all ways, but suffered. So don't think, well... If I'm perfect and I never sin and I, do, and I always do what God says, then I'm going to have the perfect life. That's not true either. But one of the ways to guarantee you won't is to completely diso- or continue to disobey God. And the nation of Israel sees that over and over again. So how does Israel respond to this? 1 verse 4, it says, When the angel of the Lord spoke these words, all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named the place Bochem, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. So they wept. They realized they've been busted. 
and they cried. They cried out loud to God because guess what? God says if you do this, this is going to be the punishment. And they realized God doesn't lie. God keeps covenant. God's going to discipline me. And they memorialized this place by calling it Bochim, which means a place of weeping. And they sacrificed to the Lord. Now, there's commentators who say, well, this wasn't real repentance or it was real repentance. But later they just lapse into sin again. Either way, it's a clear picture of what happens, right? It happens in real life. We're sorry for our sins, and then we fall back into it again. But remember, God keeps covenant. Sometimes we may get away with something, and sometimes we get caught. And know this, that God disciplines his own children because he loves them. He wants them to do what's right. He wants them to be aware of the power of sin and the things that can happen to you if you continue on the road. So God's trying to put up roadblocks for us. So they say, stop, be careful, putting boundaries on them, watch out. So Israel recognizes they have broken covenant with God. So they mourn over their unfaithfulness. I believe it's sincere. And they realize what they've done. They're like, we've broken covenant with God. You know what that means? God's not going to drive out these people from the land. They're going to remain here forever now. And they realize that, and they cry, and they weep, and they mourn. And they sacrifice to God. They know from this point forward, they're going to have a struggle now until God decides to deliver them. And as we'll see in the book of Judges, as this is a repeated pattern. Israel is delivered they fall into sin and forget what God has done, and, they, and then they suffer punishment, and they cry out for a deliverer, and God delivers. And then they repeat the same process over and over again. And again, before we say how dumb Israel is, think of our own lives. How we get ourselves in trouble, we cry out to God, and he delivers us, and then we fall, we forget, and we fall back into that sin again. The good thing is that God is faithful to forgive us of our sins. God keeps covenant with us. So with that said, let's move into a time of of application. As I had mentioned, this covenant, this old covenant that God had with the nation of Israel is a foreshadow of the new covenant, which we all now, if we're born again believers, experience. Because those in the church of God had made a covenant. If you are a believer, know that you've made a covenant. With God. When you said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trusted in his work for salvation, you have entered a covenant with God. You see, God has also called each and every believer out of this world and into his marvelous light. Israel, he called out of Egypt and brought him into the promised land. God, in the same way has brought us out of our spiritual Egypt, our old life, and into his marvelous light, and has given us new life. So God has not only called us out of this world, but he's given us new life. New men and new women created are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We are a new creation now. God has washed us from our sins. That is part of the covenant that God has given us. And God promises to never leave us or forsake us. Like he told Israel, I keep covenant. He's always going to be with them. 
And we're promised in this new covenant that God will never leave us or forsake us. And even better yet is that God promises to preserve us until the day of salvation. That means if you are his, no matter the struggle and the trials in our lives, and as many times as we fall, we get back up, God's going to preserve us until the day that he returns again. That should be great comfort to you and me. Those who fall away and and maybe never return, maybe they were never his in the first place. We will never know. It's not for us to say. We can have times of long lapses in our life. But know that if we return and cry out to God, he will forgive us and he will take us back, just like he did with the nation of Israel, as we'll see. When they cry out to him and they weep sincerely, he delivers them. He brings a deliverer. We have the ultimate deliverer in Jesus Christ, and we are saved for all eternity now. We don't need to worry about that anymore. Jesus has fulfilled all the covenant promises and suffered the covenant punishment for us. He's taken our place. So those in the church of God, again, what is God's part with us? Just a few things again. God's called us out of this world into this marvelous light. God has given us brand new life in him. God has washed us from our sins. God promises never to leave us or forsake us. And God promises to preserve us until the day of salvation. God says, this is my promise to you. And then you're thinking, okay, well, what's our part? What do I have to do? We're called just to believe it, right? As for us, our part of keeping covenant with God is to basically give him our entire life back to him. He's, with God's done all these things, we just give our life back to him. And part of that means that we're called to be obedient to God. Just like the nation Israel was to be obedient to the covenant, our obedience to the covenant is trusting God and obeying God. Let me show you just a couple of verses for, um, that show this. Let's start in John fourteen fifteen. In John 14, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this applies to all of us as well in various other verses. If you love God, you'll keep his commandments, meaning you'll obey. That word keep means to obey his commandments. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, Another example of this, turn there with me. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. John says this, By this we know that we have come to know him. So if you are in God's covenant with him, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. A true disciple of Christ has submitted their life to Christ, given their life to him, and strives to be obedient to him. Their goal, their desire is to be obedient to God. They don't willfully always sin against him. They don't have this life that's characterized by disobeying God. 
So on one hand, you can't say, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then your life does not reflect that by being disobedient to him. This is a problem with our culture today is they want Christ. They want that salvation, but they don't want him as Lord. They don't want to be obedient to him. They want to negate his commandments and his word and say, as long as I'm full of love and I love God, that's all that matters. No, part of that covenant is that you're obedient to God. So we are called to be obedient to God. We're called out of this world. We're not to be like the world, remember. And this is stated very clearly in a, in a couple of places. And let's uh, just let's start here in 1 John. In chapter 2, same chapter, look at verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, we are not to make covenant with the world. We're not to be, you know, we're in this world. We're not of the world, so to speak. Our goals and our desires and our thought patterns should not be like this world. We're different. Again, this is what God was doing with the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to put you into this land, and you're going to drive out all their pagan religions and destroy them. Why? So that you don't become like them. And that's why I started off in the very beginning. We need to examine ourselves. Are we being influenced by the world? Or are we separating ourselves from it? I think in your bulletin, there is a quote there. Uh, Daniel Bach is a, is a uh, professor, and he's commentating on this section of Scripture. He says this about the nation of Israel. Instead of reshaping the world after the image of Yahweh's will, they live in and with the world, and before long they have taken on the characteristics of the world. That's Israel in the book of Judges. They left the inhabitants of the land. They lived among those inhabitants of the land, and eventually, as we'll see, they are going to become like them. So as for us, we keep our covenant with God. We are called to obey the world, or excuse me, to obey the, the Lord. And we are to make no covenant with this world. That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says this. This is a, is a really good verse for this. 2 Corinthians 6, in verses 14 through 18, he says this to the believers. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Don't make a covenant with unbelievers. Right? For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, does this mean, hey, we can't uh, have friendships with people in the world? No, that's not what it's saying. In context, what it's talking about is being joined together, I think predominantly in a, in a relationship, a physical relationship. We don't have that partnership with the world. That's why unbelievers or believers should not get involved, uh, you know, like a boyfriend, girlfriend with a, with a non-believer. Why? Because you're going to get dragged down. What fellowship do you have with them? We need to be careful of that. Moving on. So as for us, we keep covenant with God. So what happens when we break covenant? How many of you ever broke covenant with God? Not necessarily the way I just talked about. But in any event, we all have. How many of you sinned, I should say? I have. I've sinned. I'll be honest. I've sinned before. Maybe like once. One time. Like in the last hour, like right now, lying, that's a sin. When we break covenant, what do we do? Well, like the nation of Israel did at the end of chapter of the, what we read this morning, we should repent. We should weep over our sins. We should weep over our evil and treacherous sin, because that's what it is. No matter what type of sin it is, it is evil in the sight of God. From the little white lie to the most grotesque sin you can think of, in God's eyes, you've sinned against him either way. And we should weep over it because we've offended a holy God who's done all these things for us. And then when we sin, it's like him saying, what have you done? Why did you do this? We should cry out to God in repentance. I think this is this is what Jesus was alluding to in Matthew 5, 4, when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn are mourning over their sinfulness, and God comforts them by forgiving them of their sins. Do you mourn over your sinfulness? When you sin against God, is it more like, a, oh, my bad? It should be more than that. You sh- we should realize That that sin that I just did is one of the sins that took Jesus to the cross. He died for that sin. And yet I still partake in it. What have I done? Why do I continue? And I will continue to sin until Christ comes back. But every time I do, it doesn't mean, oh yeah, God, God will forgive me. Lord, please forgive me. Then move on. There should be some... Sorrow for that sin, realizing how bad sin is. We should weep over it. We should cry out to God in repentance and then turn away from that sin and return to God. Again, the nation of Israel over and over again will cry out and return to God. And God is gracious to forgive them. You will see over and over again in the Old Testament, God is so patient and gracious with the nation Israel. But think about how gracious and patient he is with each and every one of us when we continue in sin, deliberately sin against him over and over again. Every day, God is gracious. He would be just to kill us right then and there, allow us 
to suffer the consequences of our sin as well. How many times do we avoid the consequences of our sin because God is so gracious and merciful towards us? He told Israel, no, not this time. You're going to pay for it. And so they wept even for that reason. They knew, man, I'm busted and I deserve what I'm getting. And there's nothing that they could do but cry over it and weep and repent. Sometimes in the Old Testament, they're called, they hope that God will relent from that, what he's going to punish them for if they repent. There's one verse I want to close with that's a reminder to us every time we fall. Proverbs 24, 16. For a righteous man falls seven times. A, a righteous man will fall over and over again and rises again. But the wicked stumble in time of calamity. A righteous person, a, a child of God, will sin, repent, and move forward. But those who aren't God's children will fall and they will stay down and never come back. So I hope that gives you encouragement. You know what? You're going to sin against God. But when you do, weep over it, mourn over it, be sincere in your repentance and get back up. Don't stay down because when you stay down, that's when Satan can destroy you. You say, you're not, a, you're not really a child of God. You're not even saved. And you never come back. And then maybe you never were a child of God. A real child of God will get back up and keep moving forward. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm so thankful for your word, how it shows us your graciousness and your love and your patience towards your children. That even in the midst of willful disobedience, you're there to forgive us. And Lord God, we're so thankful that you keep covenant with your children even when we break it and we're disobedient. Lord God, I pray this morning that we as your children would cry out to you in repentance for our sins. Lord God, recognizing that we've sinned against you and it's evil and treacherous, forgive us, Lord God. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness and help us to get back up and walk in your ways. And Lord God, I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room who has not made that covenant with you, who has not accepted your offer of salvation and submitted their lives to you in obedience, that they would do that this morning. Lord God, because there's coming a time when that offer will no longer be extended to them. And Lord God, they will be cut off for all eternity. I pray this morning, Lord God, that you would soften their hearts open their eyes and ears so that they might hear what you're calling them to and they might receive newness of life forgiveness of sins your presence that is with them and never leaves them or forsakes them and will preserve them until the day of your return we pray this lord god in jesus name amen